0: This is Bronte, written by Kyle Brooks and based on the screenplay of the same name. The story of how journalist Ken Sharpton spent the final hours of serial killer Harry Hosea Bronte's life, understanding his crimes and his nature in his one and only interview on Death Row in October of 1986. Over the course of six episodes, we will speak to those around him, those who grew up with him, those who loved him, the detectives involved, and the man himself. We would like to warn you, there are depictions of violence and sexual assault throughout this story. Episode 1. SEED
1: Today's top story brings us the fourth home invasion and a string of homicides that have recently plagued Maricopa County. Officers responded to the home of a couple in the district of Fountain Falls in the early hours of this morning to find the couple slain in their own home at some point last night. Detectives are now confident this is the work of the same individual that has been terrorizing families across the county. We'll continue to follow the story as it develops. In other news, it appears rates of
2: unemployment
1: now steadily on the rise in areas of...
2: He just kept whispering, can you ignore me now? Can you ignore me now? Over and over again. He kept saying it and shaking me, but I could only shake my head through the tears.
3: We ride our bikes around town, go to each other's houses, play ball, just usual kid stuff. I never saw or heard anything at that point that made me think, oh, oh, he's one to watch.
2: He then said that he was going to tie me up, and I was going to let him. If I struggled or screamed, he would stick that thing in my throat.
1: It could be months later, it could be years later, but you knew he was going to come back.
3: He was just a regular kid. I called him Bronte.
0: Over the course of five years, between 1973 and 1978... Harry Hosea Bronte committed 13 homicides and 22 counts of rape in suburban areas of Arizona. After his capture, he would be dubbed by the media as the Rude Ripper, claiming that the cause of his crimes were down to the ignorant behavior of others he came into contact with, specifically women. Ken Sharpton, a Channel 6 journalist, would be the one to bring this whole backstory to life in the now-famous Brunny interview that was shown live on national television on the night of his execution in October 1986.
1: The Dupree killing, that was the first time I was introduced to this case. The first time law enforcement could confirm all these attacks were linked. We had a home invader who would rape and kill at will. That was the first time that I never felt safe in my own home. My name is Ken Sharpton, and for 18 years I was a reporter for Channel 6 News. I've covered a lot of stories during my time there, from the Vietnam War to the murder of John Lennon, but the summer of 73 would be the beginning of my longest-running story, a story I... Followed right through until 1986. Story of the Rude Ripper, Harry Jose Abrante. Long before the interview I conducted with him in 86, I did try and understand how and why this man did what he did for him to become one of the most unusual serial killers in U.S. history. At that point, I only knew the news part—the crimes and the families he had torn apart, including his own. But I remember the fourth attack on the Dupree couple like it was yesterday. I was in the studio, sipping sipping on my my morning Joe, going over my notes when someone shouts, "There's been another one! There's been another one!" Everyone knew what that meant at this point, but then it went on and on, then it would go away, and then it would come back. Could be months later, it could be years later, but you knew he was going to come back. I thought once he was captured, that would be where it ended for me and the whole community, but I suppose that's where my fascination in this case really began. How this man could lead an apple pie life in the day and then become something more horrific than your worst nightmare after the sun went down. How he could turn it on and off, almost almost like a hobby. It didn't make sense. It was unusual. But it happened. After his capture... I knew I wanted to meet him. I knew I wanted to understand where this all began after following it for so long. So luck would have it years later when the Channel 6 live interview got the green light to actually televise this final interview on death row. I jumped at it. But I didn't know enough about him. To just walk in there and piss it away. As I say, I I knew details of the crimes. But I didn't know anything about him. So I started making these calls with those who knew him, or at least those who would speak about him. And subsequently, those tapings were, were... Recorded.
0: Ken later began his research with perhaps the oldest friend Harry Bronte ever had, his high school classmate, Dwight Lasky.
3: Bronte and I met uh, when we both started back at High, back in the 60s. He was just a regular kid. I called him Bronte. I never called him Harry. That was the first name he gave me when we met, and he just stuck that way. We would ride our bikes around town, go to each other's houses, play ball, just the usual kid stuff. I never saw or heard anything at that point that made me think, oh, he, he, he's one to watch. Yeah, <laughs> Oh no, no. I liked them as soon as we met. One of the funniest friends I ever had. My parents liked them. He didn't always have an easy time at school. That limp and so forth, he was teased. He was teased a lot, but he never uh, lashed out or showed any violent tendencies from what I saw. He was very self-conscious about that limp. He always got it. Well, he he always said he got it from a car accident as a kid, but... um, you don't think it was that he was very self-conscious about it so i didn't push it around about 13 or 14 he was getting into taxidermy i do remember that you know i, I suppose that was a little weird for a teenage boy to be doing it wasn't a really popular hobby but then again He just passed it off as something he wanted to build a career in. I always remember his parents hated it. And people talk in the suburbs, and everyone knows each other's business, so it wasn't the best thing to see Bronte coming home with roadkill on a Sunday afternoon, which he did plenty of times. He didn't even acknowledge how strange that was. He'd just find it and casually bag it and be like, oh another one another one for the collection kind of thing like he was finding bottle caps or something hindsight is wonderful but taxidermy is a real thing it's a real hobby I didn't look too much into it I guess well that was until the
1: night he attacked Darlene Campbell in their own bedroom the classmate yeah Yeah.
3: Now, I remember before that happened, we were at the town dump one day. We always used to scavenge for stuff there on the weekends. You could get a lot of neat things people had thrown out there. So this one day, we were riding our bikes through the dump and we find this broken up TV set smashed right through. I I thought I could see something that looked like uh, hair female long hair inside of it I get a closer look and see it's coming from this garbage bag stuffed inside the TV set itself so now my curiosity is kicking in Bronte and I pull out this bag find a find
1: this deflated sex doll inside which I, I pulled away from instantly Bronte didn't
3: he was more interested, let's say. He digs deeper in the bag and finds these, like, detective comics. You, you remember? You remember the comics you used to be able to get with women tied up and bound, knife to their neck or something?
1: <laughs> mm
3: hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a load of them. He was hooked. He didn't want to leave them alone. Even after we left the place, he just went on and on about these images and how we feel. Almost like an obsession. That wasn't too long before Darlene Campbell. Always remember that.
0: Darlene Campbell would become Harry Bronnie's first and only surviving victim. After the attack, Harry would spend the remainder of his teenage years. In juvenile hall. Ken's notes were now leading him to details about the man that felt like they should have been exposed long ago.
1: My calls with Dwight were very insightful. I started to paint a picture of a regular young boy who turned onto a dark path, completely unaware of where it would lead him. So after that, we attempted to reach out to William and Miriam Bronte, Harry's parents. They declined several times to take any part in this project. I I can't blame them. Being the parents of one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history cannot be easy to deal with. But being parents of one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history, awaiting execution on death row in a media frenzy, is even worse. So, I moved on. I was shocked to find out Harry had attacked a classmate in his teenage years in the 1960s, years before the rapes and homicides of the 1970s. To my knowledge, from the case files, Harry Bronte never left any survivors in his crimes. They usually consisted of a man and a woman in a suburban home, both shot, or bludgeoned to death, the female sexually assaulted. So to find out there was a survivor from many years ago was a breakthrough for us. We had a name, Darlene Campbell. We did manage to confirm she attended Beckett High at the same time as Harry, and eventually we managed to track her down.
2: My name is Darlene Campbell and I was attacked by Harry Bronte when I was 15 years old. I attended Breckett High at the same time as Harry, but I wouldn't say that I knew him. I knew of him and I knew he had this limp. I honestly felt sorry for him. He was bullied over it all the time. You know how kids can be when people are different. I would say I knew him in passing, but I did know Dwight, and he was always hanging out with Harry. At the time, I did kind of have a crush on Dwight, but I didn't always feel too comfortable talking to him when Harry was there. He would just sit there and stare. Dwight was very quiet, but Harry was forward, like too forward. I tried to ignore him. He would try talking to me when I spoke to Dwight and I tried to politely ignore him if I can say that. He made me uncomfortable, so I kept my distance. After the attack, I went round in circles thinking, how did he find out where I lived? Was it random? Was it a coincidence? Would he have done this to anyone? But the more I thought about it, I realized he knew which bedroom was mine. He knew in the dark. And that's when it came to me. I remembered not long before that night, I saw Dwight pushing his bike across the street from my house just as I was walking home. I didn't just go inside, which would have been the wise thing to do because as I crossed the road to see what was happening, I see Harry kneeling next to the bike. So I asked Dwight what was happening and I remember he had gone over a nail or something and his tire was torn apart. Harry was just looking at me and I could feel his eyes burning into me, but I wouldn't make eye contact. So Dwight was making small talk about the school dance later that month and Harry just abruptly said you could go with me. I was taken back. It was just so, as I say, forward and forced. It didn't feel right. I just tried to pass it off and end the conversation so I could get across the street and into my house. I didn't even think at that point that he was watching what house I went into. But now, I know he was.
0: Brody would then watch Darlene's house from across the street for the following two nights. Studying what room the family ate in, what time the lights went out, what bedroom Darlene would go to how many people were in the house, his anger building as the hours passed by. Unbeknown at this point, this would later become a key recon strategy for Bronnie in his future crimes.
2: It was just a normal night. I finished dinner with my parents, went to bed, and at some point in the night, I heard my bedroom door creak open, and then this real bright light was being shined in my face. I thought it was my dad as I couldn't see the person, and before I could speak, he jumped on me and covered my mouth. I still couldn't make out his face at this point. He just kept whispering, can you ignore me now? Can you ignore me now? Over and over again. He kept saying it and shaking me, but I could only shake my head through the tears. I then felt something sharp against my neck. I don't know if it was a knife or what, but he asked me if I could feel it and I nodded. He then said that he was going to tie me up and and I was going to let him. If I struggled or screamed, he would stick that thing in my throat. So he then throws me on my front and ties my hands together. I can feel him struggling to tie my feet together. It was just taking too long and he was all in a rush in one moment and then it was like he was trying to be precise and the flashlight was moving all around the room. He then started muttering under his breath. He was swearing to himself and I just thought, he is gonna get too angry with all of this and he is just gonna kill me. At that point, whatever that weapon was he had in his hand was making it more difficult for him. So I look over and I see him put it on my dresser. I don't think he knew that I saw that. I waited for what felt like a lifetime as he continued to struggle. And then I thought, I'm probably going to die in here either way. So I'm going to take a chance. Then I just kicked him as hard as I could and he dropped the flashlight. The whole room went black and I started screaming as loud as I could, but nobody came at first. From what the police could work out when they arrived was that he came in through one of the screens in the back of the house and he must have known which bedroom was my parents. Now my parents' bedroom door opened outward from the room. He must have checked that when he was inside. So he grabbed a chair from the dining room and blocked it. After I kicked him, he went fucking crazy. He was shouting, you stupid bitch, you dumb fucking whore as he jumped back on top of me to stop me from screaming. I could hear banging coming from my parents' room and eventually my dad was able to smash the chair out of the path of the door. When he finally got in the room, Harry tried to go for the window, but my dad grabbed him and he just beat him on the floor. I mean, beat him. The police were on their way But dad just kept hitting him and hitting him until he was pulled off. I think it would have been better if he did kill Harry that night. After I found out it was him, I couldn't stay in that school anymore. I couldn't even sleep in that bedroom anymore. So my parents made the decision to move east.
1: If I said I didn't feel uncomfortable, by Darlene's words, I'd be lying. How do you recover from that? How do you accept that happened to you? But she did. She survived. Sadly, he never made that mistake again. But what started to become clear to me was Harry needed to be seen. Almost like being ignored was a trigger for him. A trigger that led him to try and control whoever he felt offended him. Was that the reason behind his future homicides? Did they ignore him in some way? I knew some of these questions could only be answered by the man himself. But for now, maybe. Maybe it was. In the meantime, the, the execution date was set for Harry, Jose bronte 11 p.m., October 16th, 1986. Subsequently, if he agreed, this would also be the date of his final interview, shown live across the nation. We knew it would be major, but while we awaited his decision on this interview, we still had time to kill.
0: The 1986 Bronnie interview would receive the highest ratings in the station's history. A man on death's door confessing all his secrets to camera. Harry had now been incarcerated for eight years, and Ken knew the people who knew him best at this point of his life were his own guards.
1: Uh, thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak to us. Not a problem. It's Al Al, right? Yeah, and Al Al Hernandez.
3: I've been a prison guard for Arizona State Prison's Death Row for twelve years now. I've been around Harry Bronte near near enough every single day he's been in here. He likes to talk, man. Huh? He'll talk you he'll talk your head off about anything. Music, bands History of the blues, favorite films, anything and everything, man. But occasionally he would speak of his crimes. He would never say the names of his victims, though, even though he knew them. He would only say the suburb it happened, never his name. I think it's too real for him then. They were people to him then, not objects. He spent the last eight years being, after being sentenced to death, with nothing but reflection on what he did. And what his family went through, I don't, I don't know if I would say there was remorse there. I've, I, think it's more shame. I think it's more shame in the way he speaks about them. If he talked about the two killing, he would just say the Fountain Falls incident, the Fountain Falls incident. That's all. You say by the fourth attack, he was a lot more at ease with what he was doing now. But he still needed to allow his confidence to build. So he would never rush into an attack. He would, he would never drive drive into it. He would, he would you know, he'd, he'd never just drive around 2 a.m. see a nice house and go hit it. He wanted to know all the details before he went in there. Then he was in control. It was like it was his house at that point. We'd find the individual first or individuals, and follow them home. Once you know where they lived, he would scout that place, maybe two nights, learning the routines, what time they left in the morning, how many people were home, what time they went to bed, where the bedroom was, if there was a dog. Once he got the confidence, he knew all that, then he would
1: strike. Uh, did he ever mention how he selected these individuals? Was it random? I
3: think that's the way he looked at it at the time. I mean, you were there. You, to to the cops, to the media, to everyone. It looked looked random. It looked completely random. That's why nobody got him. He hated rude people. He always said rude people built an irrational rage inside of him because there was no excuse for it. Excuse. It's quite ironic when you think about what he did. I wouldn't have said a wrong word to him, that's for sure.
0: Harry had been precise in his crimes. Careful. Careful to the point his own family knew nothing of what he was doing. A family man who hid behind the mask of conscience.
3: I know he would like to see them one last time, but I don't think that's likely to happen. After his incarceration, she left with his daughter, and that's all he knows. No contact since then. By the sounds of it, he was a good husband, a good father, but somehow kept his whole other life hidden from everyone. She had no idea until he was captured what he had done and how long he had done it. Little did she know the reason she double-checked the locks night was because of her husband.
1: He was the one out there doing these things. So I kept coming back to this same theme. Uh, Harry hated being ignored. I didn't know if it was just... if I didn't know if... It just went that deep. I couldn't speak to his parents. His childhood before high school is a blank to me. I knew he was not cooperative with psychologists whilst he was in prison. Uh, maybe... Because he had nothing to haggle with, I don't know. But uh, on October thirteenth, three days before his scheduled execution, we get a call to say he's accepted. He'll do the interview. I I thought he wouldn't. I was convinced he would take it all to the grave. I, I remember he acted. Well, we act. We had to act real fast, and I was having to collect all my notes and tapes. When I finally thought, hmm, "Do I really want to do this?" For the past few months, I, I was doing all this preparation, but I didn't feel it, it. None of it felt real. Still, I wasn't nervous about it because I I didn't think it, I would genuinely w- was going to meet him. That this was going to happen. He was like a myth until then. But now, I was going to have to speak with this man on national television, and I didn't really know how he was going to be. I took a night to think about it. I slept on it. Thinking, should I pass all this on to someone else? What if it's a complete disaster? What if it's violent? So I slept on it, and in the morning, I I thought, this is make or break. If this does well, you'll kick yourself the rest of your life if you're not on it. And if you were going to quit, you should have done it a long time ago. So on October 16th, we headed to death row. When we arrived outside of the prison, that was mobbed. There were SUVs everywhere, people had campfires burning, food, drink, piñatas of Bronte, they were burning. I saw dozens of these people with these shirts printed with uh, Happy Hell Harry on the front of them from Burn Bitch Burn. This was a party these were families of the victims Uh, they wanted front row seats to his execution i was anxious now it was like something out of the dark ages when we we finally get inside then that inside the cell blocks i was told the interview would be conducted in the cafeteria under armed surveillance the place was loud. It just, it felt ugly. But when we got in that cafeteria, it just all went away. So we set up all, all the taping gear. i I wasn't going to miss anything. Then I had to wait for him to come down. I remember one of the guards said to me, remember, he's not your friend. That took me by surprise. I didn't know what I was going to meet here. (laughs) But I was definitely going to find out. (laughs) Can you just state your name and why you're here? My name is Harry Jose Bronte and I'm a serial killer. Next time on Bronte. My friend then says to me, no, no, Ken, I, I think you really might want to speak to them now. They're Harry Bronte's brother and sister. All I could hear were these loud thuds and
0: Harry screaming. He was just begging for him to stop hitting them. And... I only regret I never had the chance to kill him myself.